It's so easy to forget the basics, to forget the fundamentals, to to jump to what we would consider greater things. This is true in so many areas of, of lives. It's true of sports. You know, skip the fundamentals. They're boring. And go to supposedly greater things. Or whether it is skip the hard work that it takes to, to uh, start out in life and expect automatically what your parents have and, and all of those things. Or whatever the case may be, the tendency we have is to forget the basics. Or to somehow think we've advanced past the basics. And 1 Corinthians shows us the need to never forget the basics of the Christian life. Today we're going to begin a journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. And and I say journey very specifically because really like any other New Testament book, we need to remind ourselves that we're not just reading information. We're not just reading a list of facts. But what we are reading are specific real-life situations that happened. Real-life circumstances, real-life temptations that not only plagued the first-century churches but that are very real and alive in our lives today. We're, uh, look, we're watching, our family's watching a World War II uh, uh, documentary series right now, and it's amazing how things look different. Vehicles look different, people's clothes look different, uh, buildings may look different. But the core issues that were going on in society are continuing to go on. Life does not change. We are dealing with the same things that these brothers and sisters were dealing with in the first century. I like what one individual says concerning the Corinthian church. He says, the Corinthian church holds the dubious distinction of being the most confused congregation or group of congregations that Paul addressed. I mean, man, if you want to look at a messy church, I mean, no church has all of their act together. You've heard the the, the popular phrase, if you want to join, or if, if you're looking for the perfect church, don't join it because once you do, it'll no longer be perfect. I mean, there is no perfect church because we're not perfect people. But the book of Corinthians lays out for us the difficulties that are involved in church life. You see, the church really, this church and we as well today, we face two difficulties, two categories of difficulty. The first conflict that the Corinthian church faced and that we face today in the 21st century is that we face the difficulty of conflict within the church. Again, we are all sinners and we are together and sinners will sometimes sin against other sinners, right? 
And there can be sinful reactions to situations. There was conflict within this church, and that is what all churches today face. But not just conflict within the church, but we read in 1 Corinthians there was also conflict outside of the church. The conflict outside of the church was the temptation that these Corinthian Christians had to compromise with the values and the norms of society. Boy, don't we face that temptation today? We are inundated with values and norms that society says should be happening that are right. We're surrounded by inappropriate ways to, re- to respond to conflict inappropriate ways to react when things don't go our way. And because we live in this culture, we can't help but be tempted to pursue the values of this culture. And that was what was going on in Corinth. You see, the book of 1 Corinthians, it's not simply a history lesson of what happened in a first century church, no, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, we must take heed lest we too fall. But while, while there are many problems that plague this church, we're going to see this morning and we're going to see throughout the entirety of the book that there is also great hope. Because Paul anchors this church in his letter to them from start to finish in the reality and the assurance that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, is what they need. It is the exact thing they need for stability in their lives and in their church, for growth in their lives, for growth and health in their church. And for true unity. And that's the basics that we can't forget. The basics is that as Christians, we are tempted to move away from the gospel to pursue lesser things. Things that even seem religious, because we're going to read in the book of 1 Corinthians that they thought some of the things they were pursuing were very religious. And they were anything but that. We cannot, as Christians, move away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what we need for stability, growth, and unity in our individual lives and in the life of this church. Paul presents the gospel from the very opening of his letter. And each one of the difficulties that that Corinth is going through that Paul addresses, he brings them back to the gospel. Many times when we start out a, a, a book study, I like to take a week to introduce kind of some of the things going on around the book and some of the overarching themes in the book. I'm not going to do that this morning because we're going to actually see that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9 is very sufficient 
for us to get an overview of the entire book. He literally, in the first nine verses of, of 1 Corinthians, sets out, unpacks everything that he is going to say later on in the book. So this morning, we're going to jump right into the beginning of this letter because it's the opening section that Paul sets out and he encourages them with the gospel. And that's the title of today's sermon. It's all about the gospel. Today we're going to unpack two major perspectives that the gospel can give us. The gospel, when it is rightly understood, it gives us a specific identity and it gives us a very specific hope. The main theme that we are going to repeat over and over in our series is this truth that if we are to get back to the basics, it's going to require that we cling to what truly matters. We release those lesser things that we are so prone to hold on to, and we return ourselves to the necessity, our full dependence on Jesus and the good news that only He provides. To realize that we cannot find hope from within. It must be found with Christ. We cannot be the answer to our own turmoil and struggle. We cannot be the answer to our own difficulties and failures and sin. It is returning to a life and a spirit of dependence upon Jesus and what he has provided. That's the basics. So easy to say, so hard to live. Well, let's pray this morning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, and we're going to look at these two major perspectives that the gospel gives us, a specific identity and a specific hope. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this new series, Father, I pray that you would teach us. Lord, I pray for those that uh, are not able to be with us because of uh, the COVID virus and, and, uh, and just uh, a higher a higher awareness that needs to be had due to health complications. Lord, we look forward to the day that we are able to all gather together again. But Lord, we know that it is the gospel that sustains us, that sustains our church. Lord, would we be a church that seeks to get back to the basics? Would we be a people that individually seek to get back to the basics. Lord, would you work in our hearts this morning? Would we pursue you in greater ways because of where our identity is found, because of where our hope is found? I pray for the individual, the individuals that are dealing with very difficult circumstances this morning, Lord, those circumstances aren't accidents. God, you are pursuing in those circumstances, Lord, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can look to you, our only assurance, our only source of hope. Would you lead us this morning in Jesus' name, amen.
The first perspective that the gospel gives us is it gives us an identity. We hear much talk about identity today, don't we? I, my self-esteem is low, and if I just thought better thoughts of myself, or, you know, what is my purpose, or uh, what do I identify with? The gospel gives us a very specific identity. In verses 1 and 2, if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, we have a very specific identity. Verses 1 and 2 of this text show us exactly what our status is as people. Look at verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's real easy to quickly read that, but not gain the, the, the significance of what Paul is saying here just in the opening of his letter. What Paul is describing for us is our union to Christ. If you are a Christian, you are united to Christ. It is no longer you and you alone. It is your union to Christ that now Christ identifies your life. You are no longer left on an island to yourself, though it may feel that way at times. You have been united to Jesus. Look at the specific individuals and groups of people that Paul mentions. He mentions himself first. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is an apostle. He has been given very specific authority to carry out the gospel specifically to the Gentiles, those that weren't Jews. And many times, false teachers, as in the book of Corinth, would come in and would try to belittle his message. But Paul doesn't say, I'm an apostle according to my own will. I really wanted to do this, so I'm an apostle. He grounds his calling in light of his identity. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why could Paul take difficulty? Why could he take beatings? Why could he face rejection? It wasn't because he was so sure of himself. It was because he was sure of his God. How can we endure in life? How can we endure those difficult situations that have been brought on by COVID, that have, are in the, the workplace, that are in our homes? It is not because we have some type of confidence in self, but our confidence is in the one who has called us. Not only does he ground his own identity in Christ, but he also mentions this fella our brother Sosthenes. Now we are not sure exactly who Sosthenes is. If you read Acts 18, we don't have time to read that this morning, but you will see Paul's journey to Corinth 
where he preaches the gospel first to the Jews. He's rejected out of the synagogues by the Jews, and he goes to the Gentiles, and a church is planted in Corinth. Uh, Acts 18 is where you read of the starting of the church in Corinth. The first ruler of the synagogue in Acts 18.8 is a fellow by the name of Crispus. I think of potato chips when I hear that name. And you know what happened to him? He became a believer in Jesus Christ. And he was no longer the ruler of the synagogue. Then there's a fella in Acts 18.17 that is mentioned, and his name is Sosthenes. He was the new ruler of the synagogue. If this was the same Sosthenes that's written here, we, now, we would know that then he became a follower of Jesus. So he may be the same person, he maybe was not. But notice his identity. Our brother Sosthenes. Doesn't mention anything about his personality. Doesn't ma- ma- mention anything about his abilities, his talents. No, he is a brother. Why? Because we have all been brought into the family of God. And if we are united to Christ, we are brothers and sisters. Already, Paul is presenting a picture of unity in a church that was filled, we will read later, with division. The unity we find is in Christ. But then he mentions a third, here a group of people, who this letter is written to, to the church of God that is in Corinth. The church as well could find their identity in Christ because this is not a group of people that are coming together because of likes or hobbies or anything else. This is a church. Yes, Paul founded the church in his proclamation of the gospel, but this is God's church. God is the leader of this church. And this specific church just so happens to be in Corinth. Corinth is an interesting place. Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth when he was ministering to the people and the church was founded. This was during uh, what we would call his second missionary journey. He was sent out of Antioch, spread the gospel, came back to Antioch, went out again. And it was during this second missionary journey where he's uh, proclaiming the gospel that he shares the gospel, and a church is planted in Corinth. Our missions philosophy at Covington Baptist Church is that there's a lot of things we could be gospel partners with around the globe, but our primary focus that that we see in Scripture is to partner with those who are planting churches. Because wherever the gospel goes out, a church is planted. In fact, we're, uh, March 7th, we're going to have a missionary that's going to come and present his ministry to us. But we see the gospel goes out. Now, Corinth, like I said, was a very interesting city. Uh, I have on the overhead a map, and uh, there's a lot of towns, but if you look to my, oh, no, if you look to your left, you will see uh, right above Achaia, I think. Yeah, there we go. It's hard to see it from the side. Right above Achaia, 
the, the city of Corinth. This was an interesting city for several reasons. First of all, it was highly populated. It was actually more, uh, more or less a resurrected city from Greek culture that the Romans reestablished. And when Rome reestablished this city, they filled it with military veterans, very uh, highly esteemed, important people in Rome, also with freedmen. Now, a freedman was someone who was a slave in, in, in Roman times, and, and a slave was many times still a respectable position, but they earned their freedom, and they went to Corinth, and really what they sought was wealth. They wanted to, they're free now, they want to make a name for themselves, and they want to get rich. And then Acts 18.2 also says that the emperor Claudius, he wanted to expel the Jews and he sent them, many of them, to Corinth. So there was a high Jewish population, which is why Paul taught in the Jewish synagogue. So basically, this is a, what we would call a cosmopolitan community. That, that just means people from many different countries that have gone to a specific city. Here, the desire is wealth, riches, prosperity, and, and a high status in this city. There was great competition for social and economic prosperity. Again, as I just mentioned, there was a great desire for status. They loved high, fancy speech, rhetoric, philosophy. They, they loved wealth. They sought achievement and recognition. Here's a place where you can make a name for yourselves, for yourself and really get famous and rich. In fact, one individual says this. Just listen along as I, as I read this. It says, As residents of a new city that was undergoing continual rebuilding and that was increasing in fame, the people of Corinth had both growing civic pride and individual pride. All sorts of Corinthians, even slaves, are mentioned in inscriptions that were often paid for and erected by and for themselves. Isn't that nice? I'm going I'm to pay for a statue with my name on it of me. Um, let's see. Uh, they, they paid for and erected uh, statues of themselves that describe their contributions to building projects. That's why I don't like it in memory of uh, and, and name plaques in churches because, man, this is to Christ. We don't need to remember ourselves. But they, they wanted to, to document their contributions to building projects or their social status in clubs. The number of such inscriptions is staggering. Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. Doesn't sound too different than today, does it? Especially with YouTube. Man, you can make it big. You can become a millionaire on YouTube if you play your cards right. Make a name for yourselves. It's an art form. This is what's going on in the city of Corinth. And when we read the situations going on in the church, unfortunately, they mirror what's going on in society. This was an influential trade city. If you, if you notice the location of Corinth, it's in between two great bodies of water. 
uh, boats coming in with trading goods would many times take their boats and on the narrow strip of land passing through Corinth, they would, they would wheel the boat to the other side to continue on their journey because it made it a lot quicker. So there was always trade and, and different, different uh, cultures going through the city that made this a popular place to be. This was also the home of the Isthmian games, the Greek games. And Paul makes mention, he makes allusion to the Greek games in his letter. This was also a very pagan city. There were temples, cults, immorality, and wickedness that went on in this city. Uh, Just to give you an idea... And, and I can't even pronounce some of these things, uh, probably not accurately. But there was, uh, Corinth used to be, uh, there was a big temple erected to the god Epaphrodite. There was still the cult of Epaphrodite going on during the first century. She was the goddess of love and beauty, fertility. There was a temple in Corinth during Paul's time, a temple of Posidon. He was the ruler of the sea. There was a temple to Apollo who was the god of prophecy. There was a temple uh, of, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, but Asclepius. Uh, She was a god of healing, both physical and emotional. There was a temple to the goddess Hera Acrea. She was a goddess of women, marriage, family, and childbirth. She protected women. There was a temple of, of Tyche. He was a god of fate or of luck. There was a temple of, of Demeter and Kor, and, and at this temple, there would even be dining facilities there. On top of that, you had the Jewish synagogues who did not believe Jesus was the true Messiah. There was a whole lot to choose from here in this city. But here comes Paul and a few others with him to proclaim a marvelous message. And from that message, a church is formed. The beauty of the gospel overcomes all of this. Doesn't mean that life doesn't get messy. There was all sorts of struggling with all of these different philosophies that were going on stemming from culture and and pagan religion. And it was affecting the church. But even amidst that mess, the gospel was a beacon in the darkness. Folks, our world is never too dark for the gospel. This, uh, uh, the pressures that, 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 that we increasingly even see in the United States of America, it is not something new. If anything, the newness was the religious freedoms that we've had for the past 200 years. There is no darkness that should make us give up hope if our hope is placed in the right thing. This is the church to which Paul is writing, the church of God that is in Corinth. But notice what he says, to those he further defines this church, they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, sanctified? It means that they are set apart to Christ. All of this may be going on around them, but God has done a work of setting apart a people in Corinth 
who would be able to live out the reality of the gospel, to proclaim it to those around them, and to be a light in their city. That's exactly what God has called us to do. They were set apart. Their identity had to remain in Christ Jesus or else they would get lost in the mix of all of this. You know what the crazy thing is when churches start to deviate from the gospel? They start to deviate from the hope that we see here in the scriptures? This is what identifies us and when we deviate from that, all of the other religions and and the philosophies of this world will drown out the voice of those who claim to follow Jesus because this is the one thing that sets us apart. If church becomes a form of entertainment, man, I can go to a concert or a theater that's a lot more entertaining than the church. If church is about what I like and what I prefer, I can join something online that fits a lot more what I naturally like and prefer. It is the gospel that sets apart the church. We must never forget that we are set apart to Christ Jesus. And in verse 2 it says, This church is called to be saints Unless we think Paul is just writing to this specific church, he says, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, we are intricately tied to this church in Corinth. Not because we know their culture, not because we speak their language, but because we too call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Lord too. So everything that we read in in Corinthians, it is not just a first century truth, it is a timeless truth. And not only do we see that our status is union with Christ, But we see, it is evident here, that we have union with one another. If we have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united to Jesus Christ. But as brothers and sisters, we are also united to each other. I mean, that's the whole thing of the church. United to Christ, and we are united to each other. There is, there's the universal sense where that's true. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord is, is a part of Christ's universal church. But then, as representatives of that universal church, we have local churches like this one in Corinth that we are specifically united together in this present location. We are called to walk with one another as believers. But not only do we see this status that is ours, our union with Christ, our union with one another, but look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are united to Christ, our present day standing is one that is characterized by grace and peace. 
I would dare say that everyone in this world is looking for grace and peace. No matter who you are, no matter what your religion, no matter what your uh, political party, no matter what your status in society, no matter what your wealth, everyone is looking for grace and peace. Grace is that undeserved favor that is shown to another. Peace is that permanent settledness of heart that allows you to say, ah, all is well. Do you know anybody that doesn't desire unmerited favor and peace? The problem is there's only one source that that can ever be found. And we see from verse 3, grace to you and peace from who? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only those who see their sin and the insufficiency of their selves and they look to Jesus as a rescuer, a redeemer, and they say, Lord, take my sin, take my life. I see my inadequacies. I see my utter helplessness. I need you to rescue me to be my redeemer. It is only in Christ that we find unconditional favor. Rachel, as my wife, um, again, she always fears when I bring up these the illustrations, and, and they're off the top of my head. So, yeah, uh, We want to follow Christ together, but guess what? We're two sinners. So I am, my grace is not unconditional like it should be because sometimes I can get upset and there's not grace displayed and vice versa. Although I will say, she gave me an early Valentine's gift and it was this box that, that was in a heart and you know, you're kind of thinking, okay, a box of chocolates and I opened it and it, it was uh, 10 pieces of the best beef jerky I have ever had in my life. <laughs> I haven't eaten them all because it's like, you know, it's like going to a fancy restaurant and ordering filet mignon. You've got to take little bites and savor it because it's pretty small, but it's expensive. And man, it was, it's the best beef jerky I've ever had. Guys, sorry for Father's Day. It doesn't compare to what we usually hand out. And I don't know, I don't know why I said that, uh, how that ties in. <laughs> I guess that was great. That was grace. It was undeserved for sure. But God is the only one that, that we find unconditional grace. The only one who can give unconditional peace. This comes from, and we see the unity of, of God the Father and God the Son. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus Christ isn't the good one and God the Father is the mean one. No, the goodness of, of God is, is manifested in himself and the personal witness we have is Jesus is a mirror to who God is. We see the source to this is found in God. 
Can I ask you this morning as we just look at this first part here of gospel identity, can I ask you this morning, is your hope sourced in the gospel today? Are you finding your strength and your sufficiency in only what he can provide? I was thinking uh, uh, just, just this past week, I was starting to kind of get caught in my, in my own mind and yeah, you know, I see this about myself, I see that about myself, and boy, what do I need to do about this? And, and you know, there's that never-ending roller coaster, and it doesn't usually go up, it goes down. But you know, you know what I had to remind myself about? Is my hope in the gospel? Because if my hope is in the gospel... Yes, you realize these things about yourself or, or even circumstances or whatever it may be. But you, you know that you're not going to find the hope from within. You have to look to Jesus, the source of the good news. How easy it is to forget that, isn't it? We preach that all the time to individuals in need of salvation. If you stop trusting in yourself and you look to Jesus to do what only He can do, you will be saved. And that's true. But do we preach that to ourselves in our Christian life? That Jesus is the source of perseverance. Jesus is the source of heart transformation. Jesus is the source of spiritual growth. No matter how many jumping jacks you do, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to produce in your flesh what only the Spirit of God can produce. Your standing and your identity, if you are in Christ, is secure. It's time to start living out of that identity. That means reminding yourself every day, my hope is in Jesus. When I see my sin, when I'm reminded of my failures, when once again I lose my uh, temper with, with my kids or my spouse or whatever it may be, I've got to run back to Jesus. I've got to find my hope in Him. I don't wallow in myself or my own guilt or whatever it may be. I come back to the cross and claim what He has already provided. And I want to be sourced in His Word to be able to be equipped to do that. That is what living the basics is in the Christian life. And listen, you don't start out in a, in a basketball game by dribbling in between your legs and, and, and by, by doing crossover moves and by doing all those things. You know what you start out doing? Dennis knows this, teaching at the Y. Dribbling the ball and trying to keep from looking at the ball. All those basics. There's one difference, though, is that in the Christian life, we always have to be mindful of these basics. 
Man, you're playing sports, you just start to do stuff without even thinking about it. When we do that in the Christian life, that's, that's a recipe for disaster because we're going in the power of, the strength, of our flesh. So as we just look this morning at these three verses, as we close today, can I ask you once again, are you living mindful of your identity? Are you living mindful that no matter what is going on outside of you or within you, grace and peace have been provided to you through God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you here today and you have never turned to Christ as your rescuer? Man, you're still caught up in, in, in kind of what all those pictures represented, represented of pagan philosophies and searching for my own way and my own religion and my own, my own philosophy of life. Today is the day to turn to the only one who can do for you what you cannot for yourself, to give you an unconditional relationship with Jesus Christ.